This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, Steve, what are we talking about? We're talking about cognitive diffusion. But first, I wanted to actually talk about the last episode. Oh, wait, a hijack. <laughs> we're just going to say what we're talking about first and then be like, okay, well, we'll, we'll hold on, pause on that. I should have maybe done this first, but last episode on decadence. How do you feel about that looking back? I don't know if you ended up listening to the final copy. I didn't, but I felt good about it the whole way through. What about you? I mean, I had to listen to the final copy, but luckily we're not, <laughs> not for narcissistic reasons, just for production, making sure everything's done. But I feel like one of the points that I think wasn't made is that one, I think to impress if it was a very particularly depressing episode is that decadence doesn't mean necessarily decline but the word does but i mean the actual reality of it means that it's kind of like a society in depression where they have no purpose no direction it's like a rich person who's got a good job but they have no purpose in life and they have no real relationships or even if they do they're kind of like not really strong or connected relationships like that's the kind of what the societal form manifesting the person would look like because it's like they are in a malaise generally trying to to figure out how to entertain themselves and fill this gap of meaning that society is lacking. And that's kind of where I ended up landing after listening to that and like finishing that book and looking back, giving it some time to like percolate. What do you think about this idea? That's what I thought all along. Oh yeah. Easy to say when you didn't say it, but okay. But no, it was really like the society that lost its purpose, but we really focused on its connection, which is kind of related to purpose in many ways societally. And I guess what makes you feel the need to elaborate now looking back? Oh, just because we we almost did a follow-up after that episode because we thought that it was going to be too disconnected and not really kind of tying it together enough and maybe some more revelations. But it's more, I think, because the entire episode is focused on how like everything's going to rot. And also, I think the entire topic of decadence has a stink from the further right corners of the political spectrum to it. So I just thought maybe we should focus like it doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't mean it's done. It can be fixed. Like, oh, that was the closing message. But I just right. wanted to impress it even further that like this could be a lull in the society that could be brought back together if we had solid leadership. Though, again, one of the symptoms of decadence was that good leaders are even hand-tied even if they get into leadership positions. Right. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So I guess you wanted to kind of not be as alarmist sounding because when you were researching about this, you were furiously sending messages my way like, OMG, the world is on fire. It's all done. I mean, that's not necessarily not true looking at the states right now. Well, yeah, but it may yeah. or may not be true. And so we're just kind of recapping. I mean, you have to be functional. Yeah, I think it's more like I'm trying to bring it back to a functional space. These things are alarming and these things do need to be fixed and addressed and they are something to freak out about maybe, but freaking out doesn't really help to make conducive plans to fight back or to like get things back in order exactly and so i think you have to yeah freaking out is 
appropriate if you are freaking out, but it's not functional and we need to be functional if we want to avoid the worst possible outcomes here. Yeah. And and that leads us to our topic for today. It's directly actually related. I don't think you see the connection Perfect. Here. No, I can see it now that you pointed out. I didn't mean to, but yeah, yeah. perfect. Great. Back to cognitive diffusion. <laughs> yeah. We were talking more on a societal level when we're looking at decadence and how we're losing our sense of integration and purpose. But what do we do on an individual level? And in this concept of cognitive fusion or defusion, the opposite of it, comes from the practice of acceptance and commitment therapy, therapeutic act or act we can refer to. It's an approach that I primarily draw upon in my work. And the purpose of this technique is to encourage psychological flexibility. So in simple terms, it's how do you work with unhelpful thought patterns with mindfulness to pursue a life that matters in very simple terms. That's psychological flexibility you just defined there? Yeah, I guess in the most basic way, in layman's terms. And this element of cognitive defusion is is one of the six act processes. And it's one of the ones that I find particularly interesting and useful because it gives you a lot of technique and ways to work with unhelpful thought patterns. So this desire for order is what is also problematic in this perspective, because we all have a sense or a desire, an underlying need for a sense of order in our lives. Certainty. Certainty. Predictability. Yeah. And structure, making sense, coherence, or our ability to understand what is happening to us and in the world. And this is useful, I guess, evolutionarily, because if we didn't have any drive to seek coherence and order and understand ourselves in the world, then we wouldn't really survive as well. Well, I think we would. I mean, we would just end up in other areas of evolution because, like, maybe apes and stuff don't need as much. And that's why they didn't evolve towards the same path we took. Right. As humans. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't be as we are now. We wouldn't have cities or all this technology or anything. Right. And so part of this desire that we have to create coherence and understanding gone awry can lead to rigidity and an attempt to kind of impose structure on something that it's not necessarily realistic or necessary or accurate. And our thought patterns can become very much like this should be this way. This is the way things are. And it very much relates to another concept we talked about, which was naive realism, is it? I think that's the one where you view the world accurately and then anyone who doesn't agree with you is either misinformed, evil, or stupid, I think. Pretty sure. Yeah. And so being highly fused and highly kind of rigid in your thought patterns, it can be a very much naive, realistic kind of way of looking at the world where you have the right answer. Everyone else is maybe wrong. This is the way things are. This is the way things should be. And that over rigidity, the opposite of psychological flexibility can get us into trouble at times. And can you imagine maybe ways where this could be problematic? I mean, yeah, in communications with other people, just any sort of socialization, it can be very difficult because like clearly if you're not willing to take other people's perspective or you think that they are wrong because they do something just different, like this restaurant runs this way and that restaurant runs that way. They're both functional restaurants that have good reputations and are profitable. But you being the owner of one saying they do it wrong, they do it bad, blah, 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 because they do it differently. And clearly that also extends to larger things like countries or cities or whatever you want, every level, basically, if you just see different as wrong, or maybe somebody who is more creative and likes things a little more loose, seeing that as wrong, because it's not a tidy place, but they don't mind it. It just leads to authoritarianism, it seems, because like we want to tell other people, no, don't do that that way. You have to see this is the way you'll see when you do it, you'll love it as much as I do, 
because apparently we're all the same. Mm-hmm. And you're talking on an interpersonal level. We could talk about this many levels of societal, interpersonal, and the personal. And so in our own minds, we can often internalize these messages or voices of, of like said dictatorship kind of, but it becomes almost like an inner dictator where your mind is telling you stories about yourself as a person that are highly unhelpful and highly rigid. Like I always do this bad. I'm never this. You know, the always and never black and white thinking we talked about in the episode on cognitive distortions. It's like episode 12 or something way long ago. And it could tell you stories about your identity that, of course, it's not necessarily wrong to have a sense of identity. I mean, we'd feel, some people feel highly adrift without a sense of the self. It is wrong. You shouldn't have <laughs> you shouldn't a sense of identity. identity. Have no idea. Just be completely lost. Yeah, that, that totally works out, adrift. too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Identity gone awry is a real thing because you can develop like victim narratives about yourself that disempower your ability to act and actually better your situation. Like being too married to a particular identity claim. I don't remember identity claims. I think like actions or things you have that signify maybe. I don't remember. There's a bunch of different terms here that aren't used in conventional ways, if I remember correctly. But yeah, you get too married to a particular persona and in doing so, you can't let it go, especially when it's, like you said, a, a bad one, like victim or sick person or something along those lines, because then you you don't want to get better, because if you do, you lose a sense of who you are. You lose a sense of, yeah, understanding coherence and order of like, this is who I am. And if everything else in your life feels highly chaotic, this is something that you know is solid. You know this is true. But is it really? It's an illusion for sure. But there's this other thing I've noticed in like groups where say there's like an old group of friends that have been friends since like high school and you're all kind of doing the same thing, going on the same path and sticking together. But one of them decides that they're going to start like being better. They're going to improve themselves. They're going to study stuff, get a better degree, move on up. And some of the friends, if it's like a small town, let's say, and they're all kind of working in local establishments, they may be afraid of what that means for the group because maybe that person will move away. Maybe that person will be too good for them. Or even more simply, I guess a relationship where they have unhealthy lifestyles and one of them decides they're going to fix that. The other one may subtly undercut that because it's something that they either have to keep up with or maybe be left in the dust. And it's basically throwing things into disarray. So even your friend group, sometimes we've talked about this before off air that everyone says they want you to improve, but sometimes you'll find that there actually can be these subtle inhibitions towards change because it can threaten the social dynamic. It'll make things uncertain. And this is true even sometimes for the person at the bottom of the totem pole, the one that gets shit on by everybody in the group, they may still want that because it's predictable. It's something they can find some comfort in, even if it's not pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. People create predictability, coherence and in order out of all kinds of things, even disorder. And if chaos is familiar and they become to identify as I am just this chaotic person who does these chaotic things, like although objectively it's a chaotic situation in their mind, it's a kind of fusion, cognitive fusion to this narrative that this is the way things are. This is who I am. Is that what cognitive fusion was? I always thought that cognitive fusion, the way I saw it, because like cognitive diffusion is about like stepping back from your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, cognitive fusion, I thought was like, okay, the metaphors I typically use when talking about this are like you're watching a TV and on the screen there's a bunch of different like violence or love or whatever things on the screen but at what point does the things on the screen become the tv never 
it never becomes that. It's always two separate things. It's just one is the stage for the other one to exist, but it doesn't need that or require that. It is still some separate entity. Or the other one is the clouds in the sky one. Do you want to tell me that one? Yeah. Just before we get into that metaphor, though, this very much does relate to what I'm saying regarding narratives of oneself, because the narrative of oneself of I am this type of person... Is the picture on the screen? Is that picture on the screen. Is right. that cloud so, in the sky? I guess I should probably close that loop before we delay it too long. So in this metaphor, the TV is your mind, or is I guess you is you, I think. And the pictures on the screen are the ideas that are coming along. They're not the same, but they can appear the same from a TV's perspective, I guess. Yeah. So you are the TV, your thoughts are the pictures, you know. And the sky and the clouds metaphor is uh, the idea that you are the sky. You are the blue sky that is open and clear. And that's kind of your you as awareness, as being in, in pure awareness, if you want to go into more kind of, I guess, mindfulness language, I guess. And your thoughts are the clouds. And your thoughts can come and go, like the clouds come and go. Sometimes they can be nice and fluffy ones, and sometimes they can be dark and stormy. And they just are there in the, in the space that is you, kind of that awareness of those things. And, and so this guy is not ever identifying as any particular arrangement of clouds. I am this very chaotic storm. No, it's just space where these things pass through. And this, again, so much of this relates to, I guess, mindfulness and a lot of Eastern philosophical traditions like Buddhism in the way uh, ego is juxtaposed against clinging of the ego identity onto thoughts and identities as barriers to kind of this enlightenment idea of pure awareness. And I don't want to step too far into that area because it's not my expertise, but just that's the extent. Oh man, none of this is my expertise. Well, I mean, I guess it's self-psychology, but like (laughs) a lot of the stuff we talk about is like things that I just have an interest in. So like always take these things with a grain of salt. Some of it I'm just saying to remind myself of how we should be sometimes. But yeah, this is just supposed to be, again, we don't want to present as like knowing everything, but we are intending to be a launching pad. And and even saying like acceptance and commitment therapy or psychology, that is my expertise. Like I could say that in a very rigid, identified, fused way. Yeah. So your words are are word of God from that area, even though, yeah, and this happens with experts all the time. You're right. Who dare challenge me? Yeah. That like an expert will say something. It's like, uh, that's actually contested in the field itself. There's no common agreement about that thing. So even when I'm talking about psychology, an area that I deal with all the time, I'm not speaking as if this is the truth. It's just something that I have a lot more experience in. So the word fusion, I want to talk about that too, because the concept itself can be very intimidating. And I remember when I first learned about it, I was like, cognitive fusion, that sounds like some kind of fancy, like nuclear fission. It reminded me of, I guess you can say, even though it's a different word, but it it sounds very complicated. But let's look at the word fusion. What's it mean for something to be fused? To be joined together indistinctly so that two things become one. Right. And I often clasp my fingers when I'm showing this, like it's like fused where it's together and they're two separate things they're fused into one thing like the clouds being fused with the sky which we know is is not possible or like the pictures on the television screen being fused with the screen which is not actually how these things are unless it burns in unless it burns in <laughs> the then, old tvs then yeah. it's fused there you go <laughs> The limits yeah, of the problem solved. The philosophical issue is not there anymore. <laughs> yes. And so when we become very rigid in these things, it's it's often in an unrealistic way where really is the picture 
fused with the screen or do we just have the TV on pause right now and we're fixating on it and we can press play and things will change, things will pass. Or is it GIF on loop? You just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. That's a nice metaphor for rumination. Mm. That is actually, all this to me kind of feels like, I guess the cognitive fusion, defusion, when you kind of follow it far enough, it feels like it's when you start stepping back and seeing these bad thought patterns or maybe not, maybe we shouldn't label them as good or bad, but the dysfunctional or ones that make you depressed or angry or anxious. I kind of consider it like a malware that's been installed in our head that's trying to basically trick you and it's affected the system. I mean, it is a mental illness, so we could kind of treat it like that a little bit, but it's like a meme, basically, back to that thing. It's this complex of beliefs and ideas that is trying to convince you that these are you, these are your thoughts, and you are bad. And if it goes far enough, like depression, it can be like ultimately trying to like destroy the system, just tear it all apart because it is irredeemably bad, but that is still just a thought that is passing through your head. Like, people must hate me for this reason. If you fuse with that idea, then you believe people do hate me for this reason. And it's just a thought that has passed through. And if you acknowledge that, like you can talk about how to address these things, the, the thank you, <laughs> thanking your thoughts thing. But if you address it and like just let it be instead of actively fighting it or fusing with it, it'll be more likely to let go. Yes. So maybe if we get more specific and get into more my comfort zone of actually process doing these things rather than talking about these things because i'm never sitting with a client like psychoeducating them for hours about <laughs> how this stuff works usually it's a little tidbit here and there if necessary maybe a metaphor can you maybe even think of unhelpful thought patterns that you've kind of dealt with more recently in terms of this this thought is stopping you from doing something and it's very rigid and it's not true it's just likely a cognitive distortion or some kind of identified pattern based on history if we can maybe pull one out or think of a time where i mean i don't know one of the more obvious ones i think is very relatable for people would be i just had to give a speech because i was best man at my cousin's wedding so that i mean i kept catching myself thinking well i don't even know what i was thinking exactly but i had to keep reminding myself that it doesn't matter like if I do terribly and I just like really screw up, maybe I'll like mildly insult somebody. But even then, like they'll maybe be a little bit angry. The aftermath won't be big. I won't be dead. I won't be like maimed or anything by it. And so it doesn't ultimately matter. And it reminded me kind of of a time when I was having to jump over like this really far, far drop between two buildings in Toronto once. And I just remember telling myself, like, if I focus on the fear or whatever, like that bad outcomes, then I'll probably make them more likely because I'll be shaking and afraid of that thing. So if I just accept that, maybe that will happen it'll allow me to perform better because it like just the fear alone can make the fear outcome manifest right so yeah self-fulfilling prophecy but you, what you did there was actually another part of act which is the acceptance component of it which is very much related but let's get to this kind of thought pattern that's not obvious and it's certainly not and sometimes the way i get at it with people is i'll have them imagine like imagine that moment before like you're sitting there everyone's eating you're maybe not eating because you're kind of like, oh, I just want to get this thing done with. And maybe you're not drinking either because you don't want to like... You don't want to be foggy. Yeah, or something. But you know what's coming up and maybe it's in about 10 minutes. And like, is there a feeling in your body that you anticipate having to give the speech? Like, is there some kind of feeling? I mean, I, I just lived this like several days ago. And yeah, I didn't eat. I had some drinks, but not, not many. And like everyone around me was eating. Like, what did you feel? Probably in my stomach, uh, just like tension there and like trying to focus on <laughs> taking deep breaths and just continue to work through the speech mentally because the way 
way I set them up is like thought hooks. So like one thought leads into another one. And so I just kept trying to remember the order of the thoughts so I could go up there and do that while nervous. And so this feeling in, in this kind of butterflies, this kind of dis-ease in a sense, if it had a voice, like what would it say? Oh God, this is not fun to do in public domain. <laughs> if I had a, it had a voice, I don't, I don't know. I don't usually engage with those feelings that way. So I don't have an answer for that. I don't even know what the voice would sound like. Cause that seems like an easier thing to say, but like, I don't know. Are you trying to, are you trying to get to the thought that was like the fear? Cause like I could guess that you'll be ostracized or judged harshly or like you'll be severely embarrassed. You'll be kicked out of the group. But I don't know. Like people will never forget how bad this was. But the George Costanza toast where he got booed and like almost kicked out of the wedding for it. Like that kind of thing is the fear. Yeah. You will be ostracized. You will be disowned. You, you will no longer belong. You'll be judged. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's usually what most people fear or at least dislike. Yeah. And so there's an underlying kind of parasite, I guess you can say in terms of a, a thought. And this particular example is maybe not ideal because really everyone has this for obvious reasons. <laughs> not everyone, but most people. If we were speaking about a more specific personal example of like, you know, every time I'm around my mother, I feel this feeling of like tension. And then we would kind of get to what's actually going on there unique to that person. And so we're approaching our way into this with an example that I guess is quite uniquely broad that I wouldn't necessarily be talking to someone about this particular type of thing. So we, we've now identified a thought and that thought might be, I will be rejected if I perform poorly. Sure. Yeah. Would you say it differently? <laughs> no, it's just concisely, I guess. Ostracized might be like a stronger word around reject seems more because like somebody rejects you. It's like they reject your offer for a coffee. Like eh, okay. it's not as serious as like. Yeah. And I don't, and that's, this is why I'm asking you. I don't, you don't want to put words in the person's mouth, but they're like, sure. No, I want to be like, I want it to land. And you're like, yeah, that feels right. Like that feels like it resonates. So I will be ostracized if I mess up. Or banished, I guess, would work too. Like forced forced to be completely removed. Forced to be completely removed. Okay, there we go. I mean, that, these are not realistic outcomes, but I mean, this is like the primal fear that I think that comes along with public speaking. Oh, completely. Or like dating for some people or business, I guess. No, no this is all evolutionary. You know, we, we couldn't survive on our own in, in early hunter-gatherer contexts without the group. And, and being banished, like that word, it's like a sentence to death. It's like a death sentence. And I guess this reminds me of the old, most people would rather be in the coffin rather than giving the speech. Yeah, that's a Seinfeld bit. <laughs> yeah. The number one fear is public speaking. And number two is death, which means that people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. Yeah. Yeah. And because this unrealistic linking of giving the poor speech equals publicly being publicly removed and rejected, that we kind of found a thought that is equivalent to this malware. You know, it was put there on, for good reason. This tendency to protect ourselves. So there's no bad parts. And this relates to uh, this internal family systems theory that there are no bad parts to us. There are just parts that are more useful for certain times and parts that are less useful. Right. And so this particular drive to protect yourself in front of a large group, it comes from something. You know, we, we need to belong. We have to preserve our social connections. We're social beings. And so what I would do is once I've identified that thought, I would maybe trace some lineage where it made sense in that person's life. In this case, we're making sense of it more generally, evolutionarily speaking. But if it was a particular unique thing to that person, I'd look at, you know, how that thought served them as a child where they couldn't, you know, cope in other ways. And so they, they used this as a way to kind of protect themselves because they couldn't deal with it. Right. And 
with these sorts of fears, I think like one of the ways that people get treated is exposure therapy and tying that back because I found that giving the speech at your wedding, for example, I basically blacked out. I don't remember really doing it. You weren't even drinking PS for everyone. No, no. I, I was completely sober. I mean, I blacked out like just the pressure of it. I just went up and my body acted. I kind of washed myself or forgot most of it. And then afterwards it was just done. I was like, oh God, and the relief of that. But from the outside, apparently I looked normal and fine. And so this time though, what I'm getting to is weirdly the podcast because it feels like a sort of exposure therapy. Yeah. But it's, I think it's weird though, because we are not speaking in front of anybody. We're just you and I talking here, which is like radio, whoever could be listening to it, but it's just you and I talking. But I think just the practice of knowing that there can be unlimited people possibly listening to this, I got a little more comfortable because up there I didn't black out. I remember the good majority of it, at least now, because just the high gets you a little bit <laughs> jumbled, but it felt similar to the mind space of right now, actually, which is odd, you would think giving a live speech in front of 200 people. Yeah, I think you're right on about that, that this is a form of exposure therapy. And then the basis of exposure therapy is introducing someone to smaller doses of the fear as almost like a vaccine. Like it inoculates them against the fear, showing them this is safe. But you don't want to do it in an overwhelming way where they're blocking out because they don't actually get the relearning necessary. Because in that moment, you just disassociate it, you're blocked out. But doing it in small ways like this you are consciously online, you're showing up, you're remembering it. And even especially if we pulled up the idea, the old kind of, I will be banished if I mess up this podcast, we can talk about it as it's happening. That's even more useful. Yeah, but that is actually something that was a fear at the beginning. Cause like the whole talk about like people getting canceled and saying the wrong thing. And we're trying to have difficult, honest conversations with good faith. Like that can easily get, if we have a large enough audience and we still don't know whether something we've said so far could have that outcome because we don't have a huge enough audience yet. But like that fear still isn't unwarranted these days, strangely. It's actually more warranted in some ways. No, exactly. Exactly. So we are operating with that actual potential. And even now we're more explicitly talking about we could be banished. We could be rejected, more than rejected, ostracized. And and yet we're sure. Or I mean, them. even worse, we could drop off of this and be, just become right-wing shells about how the left cancels everybody. There we go. That'd be the worst possible. <laughs> we give up our openness and, and, and values. Yes, that's worse than death. <laughs> You're just so careful to not anger right-wing. I mean, more like Fox Circuit kind of stuff, like far right, not just like reasonable right. Yes. <laughs> reasonable right okay fine whatever i'm not gonna i wouldn't like that's not a fate worse than death so we are doing exposure to like this could happen and we're going to show up anyways and doing that it actually prepares you for bigger scenarios where there's an active audience in front of you and everyone's staring at you and they're waiting for you to say something interesting or else they're going to start eating and talking. And then if they eat and talk, your family sees it and, oh, my family saw this. <laughs> now they're going to think less of me because nobody's listening to me. And so it, triggering the, the fear in smaller ways allows you to build up to the, where the stakes are kind of higher in your mind. And let's go back to the fusion component, though, that core thought. Before we move off, though, I, I wanted to say, like, I think what we're doing, like the inoculation side, you're, you're right. But I guess if we follow the infection or malware I was talking about earlier. But I think to me, the way I kind of see it is convincing your non-conscious, non-verbal brain that, look, this thing has happened and you're not dead. Look, like this thing has been going on and like you aren't maimed or no real negative outcome happened there. So it allows it to let go a little bit, being like, okay, maybe this is not so dangerous. Yeah. This is all about retraining the subconscious. Yeah. So what were you asking about? Where are we going to? So I go into the subconscious by like 
if, if someone's like, I don't know what I was thinking. Like we go into the body. Sometimes there's some wisdom in that and, and they can like imagine that feeling having some kind of saying, you know, some voice. And then that voice is the thought. And then now we have the thought. And once we have that thought, we can now use metaphors like, oh, it's the sky in the clouds. But there's different exercises we can do to actually defuse from that thought. So when you're fused with a thought, you believe it. Like on the full extreme, if you were completely fused with that thought at that moment, you probably would have just ran out because it's safer to reject yourself than to be rejected. And so you probably just would have ran like panic attack, like full on run out. Like if you literally, no, not like a little bit, like literally thought this group here is actually about to completely ostracize me right now. Like if you fully bought into that thought, you'd probably run. Yeah. Most people I think, yeah, if you think like this is a trap, they're all waiting they're to laugh, waiting at, to me. laugh yeah, at me. I think if you believe that to be true, yeah, you of course would be like, well, you wouldn't go through with it. Because like, what you were describing earlier is basically my definition of bravery, which is like knowing that something can have a negative outcome, but knowing that it should be done and doing it anyway. Cause like that gets you to be more brave over time. But like, yeah. <laughs> so feel the fear and do it anyway. But I know this is extreme in this example, but this is actually how people function in other scenarios. I mean, at the full extreme in that speech running out, I mean, someone could do that, but look at smaller ways we do that. I mean, people do do that with like weddings. Like, like they people just, just don't show up or they run or that. Yeah. They go to oblivion. Or like in dating, like you see someone you want to approach and talk to and you start to walk in that direction and then you just like pivot, go the other way. <laughs> yeah. <as> if, yeah. <laughs> or more complicated. One time I just like, I met a girl I was really into and I told her all of my bad history of like things that have happened to me and all this stuff. Like, and looking back, it was like, Hey, this is all my shit. Deal with it or leave now. Like leave immediately. It's like the Google hunting where it's like, what if they find out that at some point after you've already gotten attached and they're just like, you know what? I'll pass. And like you were actually more rejected then. You did the opposite. Yeah. Well, he in the movie pushes her away to avoid that. Cause what if she's not perfect? But me, I was like, here's all my shit. Accept it now or leave. <laughs> it's like kind of like subconsciously what I was doing, not not consciously. Okay, right. Yeah. And so that's a kind of a healthy way into this rather than the avoidance, opposite of acceptance. Avoidance doesn't make it go away. It just makes it come up in some other unexpected ways that are often worse. Do you have any examples of that? Priests, maybe? Avoiding sex? I mean, addiction is completely this. Avoiding one's problems, escapism, in short-term relief, long-term problems. I mean, really, the whole of addiction is some form of this often. Whether it's avoiding boredom, pain, trauma, in the short term, that festers, it pops up in these other ways. The addiction kind of manifests in, in other destructive ways. So that's kind of how I mean it. Or as Freud would call it, I think, sublimation. Yeah. Sublimation is actually a healthy manifestation Oh, yeah. I think there was like, I, I mean, I don't know. There might have been later like spliced into like good and bags. It's like you have this undesirable trait, but then it ends up making you like have this other weird obsession instead. He's talking about, yeah, Freud's immature coping mechanism of repression. And when you repress, it kind of goes into these other forms of either projecting it onto other people or just kind of these weird mutated versions of, of whatever that need is and how it's not met. But back to the actual thought itself. Let's look at it. So I wanted to show what it means to actually fuse with it and how in that scenario, you could have actually identified as someone who was actually about to be rejected, you would have ran. But there was some healthy level of defusion in that. Even though it was not a conscious process of looking at the thought, you were accepting the feeling, which is really a, a nice healthy way into that. Making space for that feeling, breathing into it, allowing it to be there, and focusing on what you want to happen rather than what you don't want to happen. You've done a lot of healthy things there. Actually, I did do visualization as well because that's something I'd heard of and I'm like, okay, running through in my head, picture 
hearing like how I do the inflections and some hand gestures and then playing in my head <laughs> that the laughter at the parts that I thought people would laugh at. And some of them came true, but some of them I was doing it and a little bit surprised. Like, oh, no reaction at all from the audience. No laugh at all. Okay, well, keep going. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like what you did there seems perfectly reasonable. We're just kind of going through this example just to pull it apart. So let's say you were a little bit actually fused with that and it was starting to hook you. And you were coming to me and saying, you know what, I don't know if I want to do the speech. I'm like super afraid. I would see some level of fusion with that. We get to the thought and then there's an exercise that you could do. And we can use this for any thought. Any kind of thought like, I'm not enough, that's a big common one. You ever hear people run around with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, even Donald Trump seems to have that. <laughs> yes. It's like it's like all over the, like everywhere. Yeah, and a lot of like CEOs probably have that running in their head. Like that's why they're continuing to do all this stuff that doesn't need to be done sometimes. Yeah, I'm not enough. I'm bad. I should have done better. I need to get my parents' approval. I need the X thing to prove that I am worthy. I'm unlovable. I'm a failure. I am bad is just a simple one. Yeah, just various forms of bad. Yeah, like even you hear it like with TV shows are like, I'm not a good person. It's like the person, the character we've witnessed has done only good things, but they're like afraid. We're all flawed in our own ways. Like I say, we're all like slightly broken, but it's like, I mean, if you want to use that word, we're all flawed. And yeah, if anybody expects you to be perfect, then they themselves, that is a flaw. So. And I'm selfish. I often hear that one the most among people who are the most self selfless. Yeah, and... I think a lot of these are like what I was saying earlier, like psychological overcorrection or maybe the other phrase is the enemy of the good is the perfect because you're like, I'm not perfect. So like, don't even bother doing any of it. Some of people or maybe flogging themselves to death, trying to be completely selfless at all times. Yeah. And overcorrection goes to that no bad parts idea that it's there to protect you in some way that's just gone awry and it's doing the opposite. It's actually making you not do the thing that is probably the thing you should be doing or want to do. And so to, to approach it compassionately. So when we pull out these thoughts, we gave a bunch of examples of various ones people say. So in the speech one, it's, I will be ostracized, I will be banished, I will be rejected. In everyday life, I often hear that, I'm not enough. I'm selfish. I'm lazy. That's a big one. In everyday life, you hear these things? Like outside of your job? Oh, in my job. Okay, in your job. So I'm like, I don't think I regularly hear people saying, like, I am not enough. Maybe in subtle, if we're talking about, like, body language or, like, phrasings or, like, the way they kind of, like, subtly dump on themselves. Yeah, maybe then. But lazy. Yeah, I mean, I consider myself lazy <laughs> at times, too. But you're not walking around saying it. But I got to pull myself uh, out sometimes. of... Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I just feel lazy right now. But I guess... I got to pull myself out of what I do on a daily basis, which is talk to people about their deepest and darkest fears and, yeah. and, and actively pulling up the subconscious. So yeah, people are not walking around every day saying like, oh, I'm not enough. But when I talk to them, they're, they're presenting with some problem. And as we peel back the layers, there are these kind of malware thoughts <laughs> that are operating under the surface. That's the context for this. And so an exercise, because you know, it, it, time flies when you're having fun. And so let's look at that thought. If you have a piece of paper, you know, put it in front of you, take a pen. Do you have one actually? No, but I have a uh, notepad app, if that'll do. Okay, that'll do. And so write down the thought that you're having. Right this instant? In your case, it would be the, I will be banished. In maybe someone else's case, it'll be something like, I'm not enough, I'm bad, I'm unlovable, I'm lazy, or some version of self-beratement, inner critic kind of thoughts, or I should be doing this, I'm selfish, whatever, you know, whatever that is. Now, you write that down as, I am 
What did you write down there? I wrote down the exact thing you just said. I will be banished. And when you say that, how does that feel? I will be banished. It doesn't smack true, but we can keep going. I think no, it's a limited Let's imagine limited you're highly hooked in by that. and you Because right now, obviously, you're not believing it. But like, let's say you were really consumed by it. When you hear that, just put that way, it feels very heavy. It feels very fused. It feels very like dangerous. More for me, it actually is more anger inducing. So like if I actually believe this at that wedding, that that was going to happen, I might start actually speaking my mind about the worst things I've thought about these people because they're going to kick me out anyway. So I might as well be like, I'm going to get you first. Like that would be more likely to be like, I'm going to have my say before I'm forced out of here. Yeah. Okay. So like when, when you read it that way, it induces some kind of like, I want to do something that's not yeah, healthy and, right now. And obviously by doing that, it would make it happen because then people would be like, we get him out of here. What is he doing? Exactly. And this is true for many of these types of unhelpful thoughts where when you are completely fused to it, you manifest exactly the thing you fear the most often. Yeah, this is like the Wells effect. I've talked about off cameras. It's one of my own thinking that I we can do sometime, but maybe next. But is that like the acts you take to stop it from happening end up causing it to happen? Yes. And so now go a couple spaces above that. So shift that down or if you have a piece of paper right above that line, I'm having the thought that. Now read it out as it's, it's written there. It's such a weird way of phrasing things. I, I'm familiar with this practice, but I'm having the thought that I will be banished. So you're addressing it as a thought where you were fused with it being like, this will happen. It's certain to I'm having the thought that this will happen. So it's distancing yourself yeah. a bit. And so doesn't it feel a little bit lighter now? Maybe less likely you want to go tell people your real thoughts and give them a piece of your mind, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it actually also reminds me of hypnosis because of my honors seminar in hypnosis. They talked about treating trauma in similar ways where you get them to relive the traumatic experience, but you do it with like by playing it backwards or putting it in black and white or putting silly music over top of it and engaging it with that in that way because then it makes it less emotionally salient. There's there's less emotion to it. So like me thinking I will be banished, like if I actually put myself in the mindset that that is true, I feel anger. But if I say I'm having the thought that I will be banished, you're stepping it back a layer and it's no longer hitting me on the emotional level. So if you think that's good, we're going we're gonna to step back. Oh, there's more. Do an, there's more, folks. We're going to do another layer. Like, that's 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 good, but this is even better. Right above that now, put a few spaces right above that. I'm noticing. Now, if you read the full paragraph here, or sentence. So I, I'm noticing I'm having the thought that I will be banished. <laughs> Of course, linguistically, this is kind of, I guess, ridiculous. It's redundant, but it's it's continuing to get you like, because, yeah, you're saying I'm having that thought. And they're like, I'm noticing that I'm having that thought. Because if you're just having the thought, maybe you won't still think it's from you. Because I struggled with this when you first started talking about it, where it's like, you are not your thoughts. And it's like, what do you mean I'm not my thoughts? Like, that's what I use to think. That's what I am. So I it's think easy to I am Descartes, you know. Yeah. Well, that's a different meaning, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's what we could take away from it. Yeah. It's interesting because you're just like, okay, now I'm noticing that that thought is occurring and it is this thing. Yeah. So if you see the process I've walked you through in terms of excavating the subconscious psychological or idea excavation, idea. <laughs> excavating that thought, putting it to the surface, clarifying it in words that resonate, that feel true to you. And then engaging in this process of diffusion through this particular exercise, there are various others to separate a layer and then another layer and now you're like, okay, I'm noticing I'm having a thought. It's like you're now identified as the sky, the awareness of the clouds. And it has the connection of the metaphor to the exercise. So it's like a grading station, sort of. Because like I just went to my cousin's cucumber grading station, nicknamed the pickle station. I used to work there when I was a teen. And you had a bunch of new tools that would automatically sort things a bit more efficiently than back then. And one of them was like his water bath. So like they'll have a machine that harvests it, it cuts out 
a bunch of the pickles and stuff, or even if it was hand harvested, there's the pickles and then there's going to be dirt and rocks and other things that are part of it. And so they put it in this lazy river of cucumbers, kind of, where they just float along and the silt and the other garbage sinks to the bottom. And so you're able to distinguish by like putting this through this filtration system. You're like, okay, well, these ones are the thoughts that are useful and the ones that I actually want at this time. Those ones, we can leave them behind because they're not useful or functional anymore. The dirt at the bottom, that is. Oh, very interesting. I like that. It's a metaphor as well. It's kind of this cognitive filtration is what we're engaged in here. We're excavating and we're pulling it up and we're, we're saying, is this useful right now? And there's actually techniques that you can use after this. So when it does come up in your in your daily life. These are secrets of the counseling profession, by the way. They're, they're secrets. Secret. Don't tell everyone. Don't tell anyone. Just keep them, keep them yourself. The best way to get people to spread information is thinking it's a secret. <laughs> it's a secret. Best kept Don't secret tell. in all of psychology. Yeah. <laughs> They don't want you to know this, so that you have to pay them. You should like use clickbait titles. The, <laughs> see, the number one secret in all of psychology, they don't want you to know. Yeah, there Revealed. we go. That's the, the subtitle for this episode. <laughs> yeah, so imagining it as a character is, is, I guess, one way into this. And we can pull up people's narratives of the types of things the inner critic is saying to them. And, and like some, sometimes people think of a, a name or a cartoon character or some kind of other character that feels relevant to that inner critic. And they're like, oh yeah, it feels kind of like... Like one of these malwares, you mean? Because like there's various ones that are part of it. And I kind of view them as like seeing that the religious perspective of like demons have got them makes some sense. Because like this is a demon on your shoulder that's telling you, you are bad, you should not exist blah 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 these depressive thoughts so like you can manifest it however you want whatever you find functional but that that's how i've thought about it and interestingly enough in in software engineering terms a demon is actually a program that operates in the background subconscious and you know so demon is actually like a programming tool a programming language for this type of actual programming process of operating it's a program that runs continuously and exists for the purpose of handling periodic service requests that computer system expects to receive okay interesting i knew it was a tool of some sort but i didn't know that it was defined like that but cool yeah perfect then it's super interesting as a metaphor because the demon i guess in programming terms operates like the inner demon i guess a metaphorical religious terms of this inner critic that's saying all these like cruel things to you and, and often when i ask people to think of like a character of some sort they think of something like a bully do they ever picture their parents well we try not like, to I think do a lot that. of these things come from their parents it does come from them it, it often comes from them but we try not to do that because it's too fused when it gets this. so we try to think of it something different so something like i like this donald trump idea of this like kind of bully pulpit character personally i find it amusing a lot of people don't you know when i mention Trump, people are like triggered and like, uh, this is not helpful. Yeah, he's a very polarizing figure. If you find him amusingly like obnoxious, this could be useful. And you, you can imagine him even saying the exact words. So, like in your case, he'd be like, eh, you're stupid, you're banished, you will be rejected, you're nobody, get out, get out of here right now. <laughs> like, like you could just do that. I've never heard him do a Trump impression before, but that was not bad. Not bad. <laughs> Stupid. Like, you're going to mess up the speech. You're going to be ostracized. You're like, So you can like imagine it like in this and ridiculous. It has to be ridiculous, though, because if, if you're kind of imagining it that way. What if you, I mean, like, okay, I don't know. Picturing a bully to me seems like somebody that might actually be intimidating. But like if you picture like a small child version of the person you hate, like a child Trump saying those things in old Trump's mannerisms, that would be hilarious. The key is that, yeah, you can't act actually be intimidating like it has to be ridiculous you have to get a laugh from it and for some people they, they think of some kind of cartoon character or something like some kind of like ridiculous obnoxious cartoon character that that's like 
and they're just you're like Mickey Mouse telling you you're gonna fail. <laughs> like it just right. <laughs> it just seems ridiculous and out of character that you, it can make you laugh. Yeah, yeah, whatever it may be, or if there's a name that stands out, like I'm gonna call this. I hate to reinforce the Karen stereotype because, I mean, I feel bad for people whose actual names are that. But like sometimes referring to it as, oh, thank you, Karen, for the, the, the unsolicited advice. Yeah, I know you need to speak to my manager right now, but I'm busy doing the speech, okay? Like you can kind of t- you know, imagine it as something ridiculous for you. And what that does is, again, a form of cognitive fusion where you are not the thought, you're talking to the thought. And, and that, that kind of humor that comes out allows you to do that in a way that feels safer. And what's interesting here is that like people think that talking to yourself is crazy. And I think having a conversation with yourself can be at times allowed. But if you're in this way, it's funny because you are dealing with these psychological disorders by talking to them. So you're actually becoming more, quote unquote, sane or balanced or whatever you want to call it by addressing these things and talking to them. So it's funny because you can talk them down. And you don't need to do it out loud. You could, but you could do it in your own No, head. I mean, around other people, I recommend not doing yeah. that. But Yeah, but you could greet it. And this is the idea of thanking your thoughts that you alluded to earlier, that when it comes up, you can be like, oh, there's the feel." So I usually like to put it in their body because people identify feelings way easier than thoughts. It's hard to like... Oh, this went back to the emotional granularity we talked about before, where people who don't have the granularity will just say like, anytime something bothers them, oh, I have a stomach ache. It is the, the physical manifestation of these things. Yeah. And it's when I asked you, what were you thinking before you did the speech? You're like, I don't know. I was just like kind of nervous. So we go into the body because we feel the feelings more than our thoughts or subconscious we're not going to notice our subconscious <laughs> by definition we're going to notice the emotion the feeling something is happening and so that's kind of like the red flag like oh something is here oh that thing that we talked about in that conversation that session oh here it is right now the character thing oh there it is oh thank you for trying to protect me in this situation you know what you're not useful right now I'm going to go over here. It's not avoidance. It's not ignoring. It's just acknowledging and moving toward what matters. So that's that's the idea there. Yeah. And I think my question is, why do you think it's important to address these things to get them to go away? Why can't you just actively push them and punch them and fight them down? Because what you resist persists, as they say. Is that Stephen Covey? I believe so. And it's almost like the metaphor of that the Chinese finger trap where you... I don't even know if it's a Chinese object. I don't actually know if it is either. You'd know better than me, but the finger trap where you put your fingers and you, you pull in either direction and it gets tighter. Yeah. And, and that's the metaphor I like to use with when you resist something, it has more of a hold on you than if you lean into it. And so like the finger trap, when you lean into it, there's more flexibility, there's more room to actually move and have choices. But when you're in this kind of resistance posture to it, it becomes very rigid. Again, back to the rigidity of, of the cognitive fusion. I guess not allowing it to have space also so like you're actively fighting it, causing it like you can't, I don't know, by actually fighting it, you're giving it energy and continuing to have it exist. Kind of reminds me of the monkey trap. If you've heard of that, where it's like a jug with a chain on it and it's wide at the bottom, but a very narrow neck, narrow, long neck. So you can reach your hand in, but if you grab the nuts, then you'll have a fist because you, you have to hold them and you can't pull your hand out. And so the monkey will just hold onto it and not be able to escape. That's exactly it. That's the perfect metaphor of holding on to this unhelpful thought in such a fused way that prevents you from having any ability to, to, to do anything else and you become trapped by it. And, and so that thought could have prevented you from giving a meaningful wedding speech for someone who matters in your life. And there's a values-oriented piece there. You know, I know you make the joke that I am both honored and obliged. <laughs> 
obligated. I, I, I'm both honored and obligated to give this speech. I know it's your opening line. That line, yeah. <laughs> but beyond obligation, there's there's a kind of a values piece to that. And and people could get held up on all other areas of life where there's something that they want to do that matters, or a person they want to connect with or go deeper with, be more vulnerable in certain ways that, that actually matters to them, but they're holding on to that that thing, that that monkey trap, as you say, that's keeping them locked in to unhelpful patterns of avoidance, disengagement, and acting out in these very kind of fear-based ways. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to cover from this? I agree with what you just said, but we're a bit over time. I think we're going to come on time, so we should probably wrap it up. Yeah, we're exactly at the hour, pretty much. And yeah. So cognitive fusion is identifying with your thoughts so much that when a thought appears, you think that is the conclusion, that is the truth. Cognitive defusion is setting a distance between you and the thought and increasing that distance as you can so you can see that this is like an advisor or like a pop-up that is saying like, oh, this thing. And you're like, oh, interesting. That that could be true, but I don't know for certain. Thank you for that information. Let's all think about it. And if it's a bad thought, you're like, nah, I'm sorry, that's not functional right now. Shouting waffles in a town hall isn't going to get you very far. So please, thank you for saying that you want waffles, but that's not useful for this context right now. Thank you. And I guess working your way back so you can witness these things and consciously decide whether you want to engage with them and take them on or if they're not going to be functional for you. That's the gist of it, right? Wow. You always give the most concise, holistic summary. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm just, I'm very good at consolidating the information you give me. I often like feel like you're like taking notes. The only notes I have actually right now are one was on psychological overcorrection and the other one was, does this rigidity often arise from a chaotic childhood? So I was thinking you were saying like the rigidity for structure could be the reaction to parents being really chaotic, but no, I'm not taking notes. <laughs> the only notes besides the, I'm noticing I'm having the thought that I will be banished. Wow. That is a perfect summary. It encompasses exactly this process that is part of a broader treatment approach of acceptance and commitment therapy. And so there's five others <laughs> that we could talk about. This is just one area. No way. <laughs> if you want to learn more, go to Steve's page. Go to He's Steve. all. He's going to be selling a product soon. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I literally do have an article where I write about this one in addition to all of the five other processes that people can work through. I give metaphors and actual exercises for each of these processes. If you're curious in learning more, we can link it in the notes, steverosephd.com. And it's an article called How to Improve Psychological Flexibility. Yeah, there you go. That's that's the place to go. And it is linked in the show notes as this airs. So thanks for tuning in. Hopefully this was functional and will help you in the future. And tell your friends about us. Tell, tell one, tell all. Tell one and tell all. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, and see you next time. Bye, bye. Just one of the core concepts. Of course I know it, but hold on. i got to make sure I do know it.